Good, good. Yeah, not too bad. Not too bad. I'm so happy that you're both here. I feel like both of you are actually part of the podcast already because Stella, you were part of the R&D process, part of the very beginning initial chats about the podcast. And Jim, you made the music, yeah. which we're obsessed oh. with. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to hear it in this. I want to make a music video. Hi, I'm Rachel Ayahuasca and welcome back to It's a Practice, your new favourite podcast by The Pappy Show. We've been chatting to people from all different professions, whether they be our best friends or people that we admire and respect, to get some insight into their practice, what connects us and how we can learn from our mistakes and each other. This week, I chatted to Stella Odenlami and Jim Caesar. Stella is an artist and an academic. She is currently doing a PhD and is also directing one of the Pappy Show's new shows for young audiences, Black Girl Magic. And Jim is an actor and a musician and he wrote the music for this podcast, which I'm obsessed with. And he's also in the cast of Boys. This is a slightly longer episode than usual, and that is because there was just so much to talk about. We talked about Stella's PhD, which is so interesting, and Jim's experience of the music industry, along with a whole heap of other stuff. So, pop your kettle on, make yourself a cuppa, and I hope you enjoy. So today's questions are, number one, who inspires you? Number two, tell us about a time that you were cared for or cared for somebody. Who inspires me? Oh, yeah, I'll go first. <laughs> um, <laughs> recently, I found Daniel Kaluuya very inspiring. I've been, mm. well, I watched Judas and the Black Messiah and I've just been like on a YouTube hole of his interviews and his um, talks. And yeah, I just find, find his outlook as a very successful actor and British actor. It's just quite refreshing and it's quite nice to see him on the world stage, but like in such a relatable way, you know, he feels like, feels like one of my mates, you know, the way he speaks. Mm. But generally I'm, I'm usually just inspired by the people around me actually and the life, the life that I lead. I think that's the only real true inspiration you can take because, you know, it's a bit, actually a bit difficult in real terms to be inspired by someone so like distant from your, your day to day to really like get on with things. Nice. I watched that film, it's amazing. So good, isn't it? So good. Yeah. I haven't seen it yet. We got a link for you. <laughs> Mum's the word. Yeah. We might have to edit that out for <laughs> legal purposes. Because I, I really wanted to, like I'd happily have paid to kind of watch it. You know, some films you're like, actually, I don't mind. I'm yeah. going to pay the money. But it's impossible. It, like, well, actually, it's not. I saw a link last night on the line. <laughs> 16 pounds. And I was just like, mm, wow. <laughs> I think I've been really inspired by the students I've been working with recently because they started um they started their university experience September 2019 is that the right year I'm going for time's very weird at the moment a weird thing <laughs> and in their first year they went into into lockdown at this point last year but they've managed to kind of keep going and I think they've been in extremely resilient for performance students because for them to have to be learning in this kind of online space I think is, is really difficult but also just their um how they've really challenged the 
the idea of what theatre and performance can be in this space. Wow. How they've embraced technology, how they've really tried to kind of, I guess, also think about the artists they want to be in relation to kind of the the kind of current situation we find ourselves in and, and the conversations around around the climate crisis, around uh, race. Like, they're really, really uh, conscientious, I guess, and, and really keen to be to be contributing positively through through their work. And for me, because I found it really hard to be creative or to, to sustain anything, any kind of creative kind mm. of activity. So to see them really um, pushing through that is really, really uh, inspiring and humbling, actually. That's so wonderful to hear. I can't actually imagine being a student during this time. God, no. Tough. No. Really tough. I was speaking to my sister, because no. my sister's in um, year 10, I think. Yeah, it just sounds like a bit of a nightmare <laughs> but then also I said to her I was like she was, I said to her how are you finding it and she said some days it's all right because she can just wake up and sign in and then go back to bed and just get over it and I <laughs> think her. that actually would have been the dream scenario at school. <laughs> One of my best friends is a teacher her students <laughs> last week photoshopped her face and put Shrek on it <laughs> like your wow. students are the worst <laughs> but also that's quite funny <laughs> Well, they did a terrible Photoshop job. I was like, here, I'll do a better job for you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think, like, yeah, I think particularly primary and secondary school teachers, they're the real heroes. Yeah. I think who inspires me is going to be able to tell exactly when this was recorded because I'm going to go for Meghan Markle. I just was... (laughs) I feel like I just can't not talk about her because, I mean, I can believe and I also can't believe... (laughs) But that interview was so brave and so, like... It's all a bit overwhelming, isn't it? Just, like, the constant cycles of, like, outrage and backlash and... Mm. Yeah. Blah, 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 with that. This yeah, week has been wild. Yeah. It's been a... <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I might... That's, it feels like it's a giant turd that I might just <laughs> skip over. Because... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tiptoe yeah. around it. <laughs> Um, and the unicorn prancing over a turd. And glitter. The next question is, the best gift you've ever received? A unicorn. <laughs> Mine must have been when I was like five or six. I had this kind of aunt, family friend, and she was like one of my favourite aunts. She just brought me the best gifts always. She always... Like she just knew what kids liked. This is before she had her own kids, and she got me uh, this kit, this perfume making kit, and you could mix these different scents to make your own perfumes. And wow. I was obsessed with it. Like it probably smelled like air freshener or something really like <laughs> pungent and horrible, and only lasted for like fifteen seconds. The scent of it, but I just, I just thought it was the most incredible thing ever, and I was just constantly mixing and mixing and mixing. Until it finished. That's such an amazing gift for a like five, six year old. Slash Isn't dangerous. Just... Like all these potions. <laughs> like, if that was me, all... have, like everything, everything, everything would have You'd be down in it. Yeah, probably, yeah. <laughs> You know those kind of sickly, kind of scenty things that like those really cheap kind of lip glosses. It's those kind of like really mm, those things that. that are really yeah. Mm. You Smell can imagine pens. as a 
Yes, all of that. Yeah. School and just like great. we just sit around just sniffing them all day. <laughs> the apple one, and I just like be sniffing them, passing it over to my mates, like just sharing this the smell. One. Try this one. Yeah, literally. <laughs> it's a slippery slope from there. <laughs> but yeah, that that because when I thought of this, it, like you, you automatically go back to um, childhood gifts. Don't you? Mm. Like, I can't really think of that many gifts I've had in my older, closer to adult years that I've really been like, you know, had a proper visceral reaction. But I, yeah, I remember like getting a PlayStation 2 when I was 11 and it being like the first like big Christmas gift and like that waking up for Christmas morning. How about you, Rach? My boyfriend bought me a purple tracksuit this week. I've seen. And I'm obsessed with it. <laughs> It's, it's so lovely. Cool. The colour looks really nice on you, yeah. Bright yellow smiley face on the front. Is it like velour, like? It's not. It's like a, you know, the sort of brand new jumper where it's a bit fluffy on the inside. Ooh. Uh. So it like, just feels so cosy, but I also feel really cool. And I think the reason I'm obsessed with it is because I'd never, ever pick it. I'd like see it on ASOS and I'd scroll right past it. I'd be like, that, that's cool, but not for me. <laughs> <And> <laughs> It's nice when someone does it for you. It gets you the thing that maybe you're yeah. a bit unsure to get for yourself. It's nice. And really out the blue as well. I love when you get a present that's just because no present. reason behind it. Oh, it's yeah. just because. <laughs> Tell us about a time that you were cared for or you cared for someone else. I think it must have been like last June, around that time. I had my bike stolen from outside of my girlfriend's house. And... Then I happened to find my bike on Gumtree. I saw it on Gumtree. <laughs> but it coincided with a time where I had been exposed to COVID for a friend. So I had to legally isolate. And so my girlfriend said she'd go and get it back for me. And so she went back and got my bike back for me off the guy off Gumtree. She bought like, it back. Well, yeah, not for the full price. We like kind of we, there was a big there was a big discussion. I was trying to encourage her to just go steal it back, but she said she didn't want to put herself in that situation, which you know I actually think was very wise. But it ended up just being some <laughs> kid who'd like bought it off someone who'd stolen it, and yeah, we were like, "Go on, we'll give you like we'll give you like half the price for it, so you're not so you're not losing out." But yeah, I ended up buying back my own stolen oh. bike. But she, you know, she went and got it back. She cared for me in my time of isolation and stress. Uh, it was rife at that, that time. I remember bikes were getting stolen, like, left, right and centre. And it wasn't even locked yeah. up badly. The, the way they did it, they, like, unscrewed a sign from the top of a, a lamppost and, like, then lifted it up over the top of the lamppost. Jeez, it is. The time I was cared for, I can remember I had a surgery when I was... Must have been 21, 22, and it was nothing, like, um, massive. But my mum was out of the country, and it was my dad who had to look after me, and he's terrible with blood, terrible with any kind of, like, he faints at the sight of blood. Maybe not the number one person that you would choose to have around at that kind of time. But I remember going back home, I was back at my parents then, and his way, I guess, of, of showing love or affection isn't necessarily through talking, it's through actions. So he just kept cooking and cooking and cooking for me, but, like, just insane amounts of food, and he'd just sit and watch <laughs> me. He's like, make sure you eat all of this, you need your strength back, you need your strength back. 
And the photos of me from that Christmas, my face is just so wide because he was shoving all of his food down my throat constantly because that was all uh, he could do to kind of show that he cared and that he wanted me to get better. And I didn't really want to be the person to to stop him because I knew that was his way of being nice. So yeah, my face wasn't that, that Christmas. I've still got photos that everyone looks and they're like, whoa, your face is round. Yeah, that's dad. <laughs> that's love. <laughs> Something. <laughs> I love that. Have you seen that thing about what is your language of love? There's like, I think there's like seven different things. It's like, I'm going to butcher it if I say any more about it. <laughs> That's why, that's why I'm nodding and I'm waiting for you. I'm like, yeah, go on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so <laughs> Mine would be, oh, I get quite anxious about health. So I think that I've got something and then I convince myself I've got it. So I stubbed my toe last week and then I convinced myself I've broken it and obviously it wasn't broken, it was totally fine but the latest like big one that I had was that I had this muscle that was like shaking like quivering just here at the bottom of my rib and it lasted for about a week and I was like this is weird and then <laughs> and then it moved to the left side as well so both sides <laughs> were quivering and I was like this is really weird so eventually I was like I need to call the doctor so I called the doctor <laughs> And over the past year, I've really tried not to at any point because, you know, obviously COVID, I'm like, they're way overworked. There's far more important things. You don't have whatever you're thinking of, Rach. Anyway, I called the doctor. I was like, listen, you're going to think I'm weird, but I've got this muscle and it won't stop shaking. Quivery ribs. <laughs> it started on the right side <laughs> and now I've got quivery ribs. And... <laughs> He was amazing. He really listened to what I was saying. He was like, we're going to bring you in for all these tests. Is there any history of breast cancer? I was like, oh my God, there is. Oh no. <laughs> but totally calmed me down. I was like, then we'll bring you in for an examination. Anyway, then I talked to my sister and she was like, it's probably something about potassium. Eat a banana. And the next day, <laughs> it had gone. <laughs> Bananas are the cure for everything. I'm laughing because I've been the same. Like I've been on WebMD and I've been like, like, like that could have been me. I've been like, oh my god, I've got Parkinson's. It's official. Like I will go on WebMD and I'll read the symptoms and I will self-diagnose. <laughs> That's why I'm laughing because I I do that a lot. Where it's just like, okay, headache, itchy nose, weird taste in the back of the throat. So like, okay, glandular fever. That's it. That's what I've got. <laughs> self-diagnosis is a dangerous slippery slippery slope it is funny though that bananas sorted you out because that was like growing up my mum's advice for any ailment any health thing was like have a banana have a glass of water and have a poo and you'll be all right just sorts you out <laughs> any problem oh i've got a cold just those three and it, it works to this day you know i've never had to go to the hospital ever again Jim, I know yes. you as an actor and a musician. Yes. And Stella, I know you as an artist, a director. You're directing um, the Pappy Shown's new show, Black Girl Magic, and an academic. Mm. Do you both want to say a little bit in your own words about what you do? And yes, I'm an actor and a musician, and the order of that changes 
<laughs> depending on where I'm at in life. But yeah, I suppose just bumbling through the world, trying to make a buck out of expressing myself because it's mm. the only only skills I think I have is just being an attention seeker. But yeah, it was really through Pappy Show that I sort of started. I'd started off as a musician or pursuing a career in music and through, you know, Pappy Show and that community, I sort of started dipping my toe back into acting and just creating and devising and um, yeah just having a community and through that I was able to you know get an agent and do the conventional routes and pursue pursue that life a bit which um, is a fun fun journey challenging journey in itself and now so I'm sort of in this position where I'm pursuing on different on two fronts which is quite exciting it's it's funny actually before lockdown last year around this time last year Rach, you and I were working on the, you know, devising a new Pappy Show production mm. and I was going to sound design it and I was going to be doing the sound on it and that was like a, that sort of opened up a new, a new avenue for me which I was exploring and really enjoying exploring and obviously we, that got cut short because we got thrown into lockdown like when we were literally working at the Barbican doing that. Mm. But yeah, that's, that's something that I'd love to put pursue and in terms of devising and making film and making theatre I want to be able to use sort of all my skills with that down the line and yeah Pappy Show has been a great community and a great space for me to explore that and develop those develop all those skills yeah how about you Stella so I'd say that the kind of my first form is is theatre I mostly direct for theatre I very occasionally perform but I also I guess I like exploring making works in, in different mediums, in different spaces. So I've done some installation work as well. I find it really hard to be specific <laughs> because, I don't know, I think I like being creative when the, materi- when the material's interesting, when the stories are interesting, and I'm happy to kind of mm. move outside of a form. So that means often trying new things. But also, yeah, an accidental academic, which has kind of started through me realising that actually... Academic spaces can be cool spaces to be creative without necessarily having to engage with a lot of the, the commercial elements that maybe define the creative industries. Like able to mm. explore a creative idea or creative um, impulse without having to think about how much money is this going to make a theatre or, or a funding application. There's still those kind of bit, those elements present, but you get to, I think, be far more truthful to the the initial impulse when you're not having to negotiate with um, an arts venue about how long something's going to be on for or how long you have to rehearse a project. Mm. But still, yeah, I'm new to that space, so negotiating that and, and figuring out what that means. But, yeah, I think those are the kind of the, the key things that I say I do. Yeah. <laughs> The, the next question is, tell us about the beginning, whatever that means to you. How far back do you want to go? I'm Jim <laughs> Caesar, was born in 1995. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know, I don't know. I always just wanted, or I don't even know if I wanted, I was always drawn to like performance and, and uh, theatre. I was lucky to be sort of raised in a household where like my mum worked in the theatre and my mum like, worked in youth theatre when she was coming up and stuff and so she 
would take me to shows and but not just it wouldn't just be like you know west end shows she'd take me to a variety of like different performances and and mm. and things like that and so it always i was just sort of like was fascinated by performance growing up but never really never really with the idea of like you know um, that's what i'm going to pursue but just always seemed to be drawn drawn to that and then yeah it was when i was a teenager i was like being bands and putting up like little things on YouTube and stuff. But yeah, whilst doing that, also did National Youth Theatre when I was uh, 16. Mm. And then seven, when I was 17, did, did, did the Olympics with National Youth Theatre, which is where, where we met Rach. Mm. Yeah, but it was around that age I was putting up music and then I got like picked up by a music manager and I was like, oh, great, I'm going to be a rock star. And fought, pursued that dream, like, like I said, and was pursuing that. And then it was, but then it was through National Youth Theatre Friends. So I, I suppose I used the word community quite a lot because it's um, through the community of like meeting people your own age who are into the stuff that you're doing. Through that, I was able to sort of just like dip my toe back into acting stuff through like theatre companies like Pappy Show and I had the bug for it and did that. And then you just, you know, once you got the bug and once the sort of like balls rolling with just people around you, you know, because I, I never went to drama school. I didn't didn't train in that sense but I suppose thrusting myself into the community of like young people doing stuff you just find opportunities mm. to do things and yeah that was the back that's the backstory I suppose and then if you put yourself in the situations then who knows what could happen and I, you know I ended up with an agent and ended up being able to do shows and we could go into the vaults and then all of a sudden mm. like you're an actor and you're all of a sudden you've got these opportunities to do things. But yeah, there wasn't really a linear route into like acting or anything. It was just like blah, just <laughs> hanging out with effect. people. Yeah, snowball exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How about you, Stella? I wanted to be an actress when I was younger. I remember being in, in primary school and really um, enjoyed when we got to do, kind of do our whole school assemblies. I think one of the first roles I remember playing was Bloody Mary. Is it Bloody Mary? <laughs> We were looking, looking at Tudor history, I think. And everyone had, like, one line in the assembly, but I had the last line, and it was, execute them both. And I was really excited. <laughs> I was practised saying it, like, a lot. Like, the most dramatic way to say this lines. And I changed primary schools, and I had a really great teacher who ran an after-school drama club, and she just let us... She let us write plays, <laughs> our own plays, and I was a weird... Okay, I was an interesting child. I, I, I used to pick up on everything that was happening, kind of current affairs, news cycle. So my parents were watching a lot of stuff about, about the Clintons. And I remember I wrote a play about Chelsea Clinton being lost when she was out shopping with her parents. <laughs> <laughs> and everyone performed it. <laughs> it's so weird. How old would you have been when you, when you did that? I must have been about like nine 10. <laughs> it makes no I sense, does it? And then I went to secondary school and then started doing a bit of drama there. But there was so many, I guess it was a, so, it was a shock because there were so many, so many students there. And I went to school out in Essex and there weren't many kids of colour. So I didn't quite feel quite, quite comfortable enough to maybe throw myself into that stuff. Mm. But then bizarrely enough, we had some practitioners come to visit us who were working on a production at Stratford East. And so having these guys kind of come to my school and to speak in a language that I understood and to have the cultural references that I understood 
It was just really exciting. And we went to go and see a production of Du Bois, which is an adaptation of The Boys of Syracuse, which was written and um, well, co- written and co-directed by Matthew Zia, who's now a really good friend, who was Excalibur mm. at the time. And I joined the Theatre Royal Strapadice Youth Theatre there and properly, properly just fell in love with, like, everything to do with theatre. applied to drama school in my audition where I met Kane, <laughs> which mm. is hilarious. We met on our, on, our, on our audition day. This is when MySpace was really cool. <laughs> And we we swapped we swapped MySpace details. Love it. And then we we said like like let me know if you get in. Let me know if you got in. And we we both got in. And that's where our friendship was born. But I ended up studying European theatre arts. My mum said if I didn't get into drama school the first year, then I would have to do languages and go and work for the UN because that was the that was the life that she wanted me to live. So I, I was very <laughs> terrified of not getting in, and very happy when I did. Um, That's so specific. <laughs> it is, isn't it? And as part of the course, we got to do a placement abroad and I went to Madrid. I decided then and there that I didn't want to be an actor and that I wanted to be a, a, a director because they have quite, I guess, a traditional theatre scene in some ways in, in Spain. And where I'd kind of been used to this idea of ensemble and working together and being able to kind of be part of the creative process... My experience in Spain was the opposite of that. And I was like, this isn't fun. I want to I wanna shift focus. And so that's kind of, yeah, that's kind of when I shifted in, into, into directing. So I'd say that's where, that's, where, that's where the love for, I guess, shaping and creating those stories came from. It was born in that moment. What? have the wins been along the way or what have the most joyful moments been I feel like Mm. I've got a sense of these already it was really joyful (laughs) I think the every time that I had an opportunity to create something and put it on like when we first made boys um, and put Mm. it on at the the vaults and devised that and just getting the direct reaction to that and another sort of play that I'd done so they, they, they're all wins because if you can really if you can really see something through from like start to finish it's a very satisfying feeling and then yeah I suppose just on, on, on the journey of like you know every time you book a job you know it's just a, that feeling of like okay now I've, I've got the opportunity to grow this grow this career or grow this life mm. We're doing something that I love, you know. And the more you do it, the greater the opportunities will come to do work that's really, like, truly, a, like, artistically satisfying. Mm. So each time you get the opportunity to do that, it feels like a win. But they don't come around all that often, do they? <laughs> you have to really celebrate them when they do. Yeah, really celebrate yeah. when they do, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Agreed. Uh, wins... Wins, wins, wins. <laughs> I can hear a song in my head and I'm not going to sing. I think I think the wins have come, or the wins feel like they're moments where I have been able to be myself fully in a kind of creative space mm. where I've not had to, I've not felt the need to kind of self-censor or present a, a version of myself in, in whatever space that, that might be. And I guess I'm thinking specifically about being able to engage with conversations around race in my work and not having that minimised or, or or censored. 
And I think mm. I was talking to a few friends about this like last year, like just how how rare it is, I think, to be in a creative space where you're able to engage with that on your own terms and not have that have that be predetermined or be fixed by other people. I guess I'm talking outside of outside of working within a kind of collective of maybe people that you've had that implicit agreement with where you're able to just to work freely and to um, explore, experiment with the ideas that you want to. So I think, yeah, anytime I can be in those kind of spaces or hold spaces where people are allowed to do that as well, to, to be, to not have to feel like they're protecting something, <laughs> to be able to lean into that kind of honesty, that, that always feels like a, a really great, a great win. Not sure. Does that make sense? Some sort of sense. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Does. It's rare that those spaces are, are hard to find, and and often you have to sort of like create them yourself. But mm-hmm. so if you can get into those positions, it does. Yeah, it does feel like a win because then you feel like you're not working. Mm. Just like, exactly. You can focus on just the thing of just being right and making and being and creating without having to deal with the politics of stuff. Yeah. outside yeah. of that yeah. with the yeah. task at hand yeah and that's the yeah the politic the politicking is it's tiring <laughs> yeah the industry and the craft the individual and the collective is yeah and it's making it really i think maybe that's reducing it to something that's quite binary and quite basic but i think recognizing those kind of things have made has made me happier and has i think allowed me to mm. choose more carefully the things i want to work on you know, if you're not a millionaire <laughs> and you're not getting paid millions for the job, then you might as well enjoy as much of it as possible. It, yeah. yeah. Stella, do you want to tell us a little bit about your PhD? Because we've talked about it a bit far, haven't Yeah. <laughs> I always get nervous when I'm asking about the PhD because it's kind of in this, in this suspended state, partly due to COVID and partly due to oh, me. <laughs> but it's um, looking at creating strategies for or for allowing communities to create their own memorials that are performance-based. So instead of having monuments or plaques or, or problematic statues of people, really allowing communities to, to take back the power to decide how they remember or connect to, to histories that are um, pertinent to their to their their stories, to their experiences. I started working on the PhD project just after Brexit, <laughs> the Brexit referendum. And at that time I was working, I was working for a char- charity that does intergenerational work, bringing um, elders in the community together with, with school kids to work on arts programme, on an arts project, if it's a dance piece or a film. And the conversations around, like, Britishness were just so, so, so depressing. At that time, around who could call themselves British and, I guess, the the many versions of of history. And for me, a lot of the kind of conversations around that are very much linked to the idea that histories that we kind of learn at school and that we engage with on a kind of wider societal level are, have been rewritten to kind of hide a lot of the stuff that's really difficult and, and ugly, which is, again, some more politicking. And actually it makes it really hard for people to understand who they are or, or why they are, that kind of denial of a history. So I really wanted to explore how 
I might use my practice to create a space for acknowledgement of those histories and a space that wasn't wouldn't be governed by, I guess, those kind of mainstream narratives and would ultimately, I guess, allow uh, room for conversation and an acknowledgement because I think a lot of them... Generational trauma—it can't really be—it can't really be treated until it's actually acknowledged, right? You can't really do anything about a wound unless you actually start to kind of tend to it and you actually acknowledge it's there. If you just try and—I don't know—if you—if you leave it, it, it gets worse. If it, it gets infected, it's so that's what—that's what the hope for the PhD is. Yeah. Is it inspired by existing, like existing? Have have communities around the world? Do they do this, like, or, or is it something that you've sort of That's come up with? Great question. Mm. Well, my family heritage. I'm from Nigeria, and in the Yoruba culture, there are practices that are specifically about about remembering the ancestors, and there are some incredible, incredible spectacles, performances. One of them's called the Ugungung. This is called all masquerades and these men who no one ever really knows who they are from um, from each family or each kind of compound. They wear the most amazingly hand-made, hand-beaded costumes and their faces and their hands and their whole bodies are completely covered. And they invoke the spirit of the ancestors and they dance and they dance and they dance through the streets. And it's the family have to leave a, I guess, a sacrifice out to ask for the blessing from 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 the ancestors. But they almost go into like a kind of like a trance-like state because they the like the <laughs> the stamina to be able to dance for just hours on end is like through it's it's just wow. insane. And I was really interested in that, but it's very much a male tradition, so there's only so far I could kind of get with that in terms of being able to fully understand what, what happens there. Mm. But there have also been, I guess, rituals like this that, are, that exist within the kind of British Isles, within the history of, of the British nation. But I think a lot of that knowledge has been has been lost. The same way, I guess, a lot of the knowledge was lost when, when they were busy burning women. There's <laughs> like, so much yeah. of that knowledge has just kind of just just fallen away. So, yeah, it's trying to trying to reconnect to some of that but make it make it 2021 yeah. make it mm. accessible for a diasporic audience this is yeah, really, it's exciting. really interesting find a new way to communicate our stories mm. our you know, ancestral stories or our, but mm. and cultural cultural stories and i think the idea of britishness is like a fascinating thing way more fascinating than like a morris dance you know <laughs> it, has the, it has the scope <laughs> To be way more interesting, have you have you had the chance to put it into practice? So I've made a performance, which I've performed a few times, and it's a solo performance. The audience arrive at a site and they have to scan a barcode and they listen to the audio on headphones and they follow me and take part in a kind oh, of wow. a ritual of remembrance. It's very weird. Solo work's very weird, and also kind of creating this kind of work is very weird because. There's always part of your head that's like, okay, my training in theatre means that things aesthetically have to look like this and work this way so an audience can understand. But when that's not the function, the function is to actually create a space for remembrance. Like it's, 
this thing of kind of vanity versus like practicality and and wow. what is necessary for the for the for the thing to be the thing it needs to be and that's been an interesting tension yeah because you i suppose you're like artists brain like starts taking over a bit exactly like, yeah. smoke exactly. machines <laughs> <laughs> yeah. exactly what looks coolest <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. but i suppose that like that's part you know like with the costumes that they do in in the Eurobo thing that yeah. there is there is a presentation a- aspect that yeah, is, yeah. Like, it has to be important but nigerians are pretty vain well not pretty vain yeah. but we care about our appearance <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Jim's like, yeah, I know. I've seen you guys. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, there's there's a lot of Nigerian pride, you know, and I'm all for it. I'm all for it. And it seems to be especially recent, especially recently. I mean, all, like all grown up, because I was I was born in my the first eight years, nine years of my life. I was born in. I lived in Harlesden, a massive Nigerian community. Oh. Like, a lot of my best friends mm. were Nigerian. Like you know, go around and I would just yeah, just the pride, the pride of a Nigerian household more so it seems than like well especially people would argue that bitch it seems of all the of all the like african uh diasporic <laughs> nations in there's London, just so many this, of us that's what yeah. it is population is yeah well yeah the, the, well, it was like a huge country as well but there seems to be a bit of i call it the lagos renaissance there seems to be like this movement <laughs> recently of like artists fashion designers musicians like coming out of lagos who are living in london just making the most incredible incredible like work like friends of mine mm. and yeah it, it is it's a country that fascinates me but i was thinking the other day um like being younger and like I went, like, the first ever football match I ever went to at Loftus Road, which is QPR's stadium, so in, in Shepherd's Bush. But it was Nigeria versus Jamaica. Oh. I mean, my family's from St. Kitts, but obviously you'd think because of the Caribbean aspect and back then in London, it was, there was the, 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 the Caribbean versus African, like, thing was big at schools. I don't know if it's as big these days. <laughs> But I, I went and stood, I stood in the Nigeria end because I was with my, my friend. Oh, great. My friend Taslim. <laughs> yeah, but it was wild. It was amazing. It was incredible. Like the energy. Imagine like Niger- wow. Nigeria versus Jamaica, like football match. Like, no been... one was watching the football. No one was watching the game. Like, it was just like, <laughs> party in the stands. The incredible. drama's in the stands, right? Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah, it was so good. It was so good. And like those communities are so like vibrant and. I mean, all over London, but like, you know, in, in Northwestern and West London, those communities are huge. And yeah, it was good. It was good, good fun. But yeah, I'd love to go to, I'd love to go to Lagos. Mm. Lagos like is fun. It's a energy bit, to it. Yeah. <laughs> First time I went to Nigeria, I was shocked because I had this real, like, you know, you have this realisation where actually you're not a minority anymore. You're walking in the streets and you just blend in. It's just, my, my brain was like, whoa, no one is... <laughs> Like, I'm just a person here. How old were you when you went? I didn't go till I was much older, till maybe I was like, I think I would have been about 19, 20 when I first went. And it was just insane, absolutely insane. And like, I think there's some, there's something really nuts about that. Like if you think about anyone of colour who hasn't been to like, hasn't had a chance to kind of go to wherever their kind of roots are from, if you grow up in the West, the chances are you kind of see yourself as as this as this minority, right? But and so that's the only experience that you ever have of yourself. So 
yeah, I don't know if I if I, yeah. if I was a billionaire, I'd pay for school kids to be able to, to go to wherever it is their family are from and just to experience that that feeling of like knowing that this is one this is one way this is one country and this is one way things are done, but they're done differently elsewhere, and your experience will be different. I love that. Yeah. yeah. Would Would you say it had any effect on your like idea of identity? Yeah, <laughs> massively. Yeah. But but I mean, but uh, yeah. So that's but because uh, obviously, but I mean, in terms of like our as you know, black British people, mm. our identities are like formed by holding on, hot like not holding on, but gravitating towards those things that identify, like, from our, from mm. our black Britishness. But then when mm. you w- were in Lagos for the first time and you did, did you feel that there was, like, not so much of a ne- necessity for that kind of, like, do you know like what I mean? Like, it's interesting. Yeah, no, I know exactly what you mean. And, and like, whenever I experienced racism when I was younger, my mum would be like, why are you so upset about it? Like, they're just stupid. They're just idiots. And I I always never understood how she never could fully empathise with how kind of cutting that was. But because she'd been socialised in a space where she saw herself reflected back, like her sense of self was so much bigger than this idea of blackness, right? She knew who she really was. So coming here and being received through that prism kind of didn't really phase her because she's like, okay, whatever you say, I know who I am. So like (laughs) going to Nigeria, like, yes, there's a distance there because I've been socialised in Britain and like I don't speak Yoruba very much at all and... I still feel perhaps slightly different, but there's something about seeing vis- versions of yourself reflected back in in everything, like in in skincare products, in clothing, in like mm. the, the, the adverts for like SIM cards. That is just so reaffirming because actually you are you you understand that you are enough. You are good. You are great. You are the epitome of of all that you need to be. Whereas You're I not think fighting for your place in society. No, mm. it's it's there. It's a given, there, you know. Yeah. Whereas yeah. growing up over here, like you know, the kind of limitation of the depictions is is getting better, I guess. But the limitation of the depictions that you have of yourself that you have access to means that you're kind of grappling with this idea of of who, particularly in teen years, for me anyway, <laughs> going to that secondary school, but grappling with this idea of who you think you are and and who. You, what kind of blackness it is that 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 resonates with you, and when there's such few snippets of it lying around, it's really it's really tricky to locate yourself, you know, and to ground yourself yeah. in something outside of the yeah. family home or outside of the kind of that community. The wider world has a has an idea of who you are that potentially has nothing to do with 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 you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 It does. You're, you're, it's already an uphill, uphill journey to establish yourself as something beyond your external, you know, beyond. Yes. So, so hear that. I don't know how we got there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, but yeah, via Lagos and your PhD. But yeah, no, your PhD sounds fascinating. Like, I, yeah. It does. It, it really it, does. It's, it's really fascinating because using, using performance in other means. Because I was like, I was. It means I, I have I to write less. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> what have your mistakes been along the way? Or what are the things that maybe you do differently or maybe have just influenced the choices you then made? I wouldn't have worked for free so much. 
Mm. Like, I I'm hear a that. Big, I'm a big, big advocate now. And everyone's like, oh, should I do a, an internship? Should I do this thing for free? I'm like, absolutely not. Because <laughs> so often you think that, well, I thought anyway that I would get a lot more out of those kind of placements and things than I ever did. And I realised now I was being exploited, but I didn't know how to um, articulate what it was that I wanted or needed. And I often put myself in great financial difficulty because I thought it was the thing that I had to do. Mm. So I would do a hell of a lot less of that. (laughs) I really hear that. It's sad that actually, isn't there? In music, like, it's all working for free. Like, I've put more money in than I've ever made from music. But, you know, I was just working in, like, restaurants and stuff and then saving Mm. up money for, like, studio sessions and all that stuff. You have to do a lot of that stuff, but, yeah, I think it's the, 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 the the importance that's put on it or the expectation to do it, I think, is unfair and not spoken about enough, you know? And I don't think it's put... I think it's, like... It's almost like victim blaming to the people, like for not doing. But actually, the the uh, the the conversation should be had for institutions and be like, why are you not paying people? Yeah. Why, are you, why are you expecting mm. free work? Why are you like putting people in this situation where they feel mm. like they're having to pursue their dreams through exploitation? I totally didn't click. That is that is literally the way that music works. Really, you have to make the stuff and then it. Well, yeah. Is that yeah, how it and works? Even now, yeah, 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 yeah. The music, I could go on, we could do a whole podcast on my problems with the music industry. But like, <laughs> yeah, you make the stuff and then, you know, if you're if you're trying to make money on Spotify or something, it's like, you know, it's like 0.003 pence per play and that's rubbish. But then so how you really, ma- how you really make money or get a career other than live shows is you'll get an advance from the from a record label so the record label will give you a certain amount of money for a certain like number of albums but then they own the masters they own your music but even like that because this britney spears thing come out isn't it like the free britney thing yeah. and, like, this constant stories of people <gasps> because also like when you're starting out someone some labels comes in and go like oh i'm gonna give you 50 grand and you're like 50 and grand strange. and you're like wow but then, you know, 30 years down the line and you spent all that... Because also you got to remember that 50 grand's got to go onto all your, like, production costs and, like, you got to spend... You actually... You wow. kind of have to spend a lot of it on your... The making of your music and, like, doing videos and okay. stuff. So you get, like, oh, 50K, amazing. Like, it's, like, more money than you've ever, ever even imagined. But then, you know, yeah, 20 years down the line you're still in that same contract. They haven't given you any more money and they own all your wow. they own all your music. So like all these artists, you know, have massive issues. Like Frank, Frank Ocean like went through like some massive legal battle to get off his record deal so he could own his masters. And yeah, it's a very skew-if industry. And it's why I kind of, you know, I sort of appreciated falling back into acting because like, not to say the acting industry isn't just as like skew-if, but like, at least when you get a job, like you get that job and you're getting paid for that. Getting, yeah. You're yeah. getting money for the work that you're doing and it's a bit more like direct, you know, pocket yeah. to pocket economy. But yeah, I can't remember how we got into that. Oh, you like, yeah, mistakes. Yeah. 
No, I think that, but I think Stella's point of like not working for free, not like knowing your knowing your worth in it, knowing your worth from early on. Yeah, I'm sure I've made loads of mistakes, but I'm quite good at <laughs> compartmentalizing my problems and just like putting them to the back of my brain somewhere yeah. and like forgetting about <laughs> them. Yeah, just mm. moving on and just seeing where it like seeing where I land with mm. and like trying to make the best of that situation. Yeah, because I'm sure there's plenty of mistakes, but. I am where I am and I'm not too unhappy with it, so... Mm. What's the biggest thing that you've learnt, would you say, then? The biggest thing I've learnt... That's a good question. I think to just keep on keeping on, really, and creating your own work and doing your own, doing your own thing because that puts you in positions, yeah, not, not to just expect things to, like, fall in your lap or fall in your... Oh, no, actually, no, sorry, I take that back because I think if you create your own work and if you create your own communities and create your own opportunities, then you can expect things to fall in your lap because you're putting yourself in the situations and that, like, releases a pressure. But, like, never, like, just sitting and resting on your laurels and being like, I deserve the ne my next job or, like... Because mm. I, I think this question was, like, partly put in, like, sort of failures as well and stuff and like so not personal mistakes but like say like like and at beginning of last week i got re i got rejected from a, a job that i was like you know i'd done callbacks for it and i sort of like considered must be down last two or three and it was something that i was really excited about and i'd done loads of prep and loads of mm. work and stuff for it over the last month or so and then you know i got told by my agent that you know the audition was great and they loved you but that it, you know they, they just decided to go with someone else and so i was just moping around for like a few days because i think you do have to like you've got to live the rejection don't you because it's not nice but then you move on from it and yeah. And and then just like loads of things just started coming in, like happening. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm working on with Mo and Eben from Pappy Show from Boys. We're doing mm. like a project together, like through Pappy Show. I'm working on like two short films with friends. And, and it's like, had I got that job that I got rejected from, you know, I could, you know, I could be relaxed for like a year in terms of like income and like I'm doing like stuff that's like stepping up in a career or whatever blah 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 so you you sort of feel like you failed on that but then actually like I'm feeling so like satisfied and inspired by the things that I'm doing at the moment and I think if I didn't have that in if I didn't have that like access to just creating and and, ri and rising up with the people around me then I would f take the take the rejections a lot harder your answers yeah. are so inspiring both of you what's yours Rach um <laughs> I've made so many mistakes that make me like cringe to my core um I'm really bad at interviews in particular I think they're so different to auditions and I think that my career would potentially be quite different right now if it wasn't for the opportunities I've had where I've like gently felt myself piss away an opportunity up a wall um whatever it is it's like i'm slowly waving goodbye <laughs> and my head's telling me to say something different and my mouth just won't stop talking yeah so if i ever even get an interview now it's like i have to really do a lot of prep for like the simplest of questions what's your name i'm rachel i'm rachel <laughs> rachel <laughs> 
the last question is, what is your practice now? How has your practice changed from the beginning of your career till now? And what are the things that feel maybe most important to you? I think my practice now, I think I've come to terms with the fact that I don't necessarily have to be making stuff all the time to be creative, to be an artist. Like I can have time away from a rehearsal room, time away from like making something. I think I used to be terrified that if I stopped for like, if I didn't make something for a year, then I would I would never know how to come back and it'd be like learning to walk again, which it really isn't. <laughs> so I think my practice has changed in that I, I'm okay with, with working on the things that I want to work on when I want to and I guess not feeling the pressure to be consistently kind of creating new content or output, but also I'm happy to shift mediums and to work in in whatever medium I need to. I think I used to be kind of really hung up on like, I'm a director, I'm a director who sometimes acts. But like now mm. I'm just like, yeah, I make stuff and that's that's fine. And I, I think that feels right because my priorities often, yeah, are, are the projects or the stories. And I think the thing that ties everything together for me is giving space to those who haven't had it before. If it's a story, the, yeah, giving space, mm. holding space. And that, I think, crosses through into, into teaching as well. Has your approach to ch- teaching noticeably changed, do you think? I think it has. I used to try and leave my politics at the door. I used to pretend that I wasn't a political being. And I think it's because I used to think that a particular way of teaching or being in a space was the, the way to be. And that was, I guess, very much... It, a direct influence of, of everyone who taught me, right? I'd only been taught by, like, mm. I've, I've never had a, a black lecturer and I've been in that space of higher education for, like, six years and I've never had a black lecturer, you know? So that means, of course, that the people who teach me, their frames of reference and how they engage with with conceptual ideas is, is very much linked to how they see the world. And I used to try and, um, yeah pretend to be this objective, neutral voice, which just doesn't exist. And so now I think I'm very happy to say, yes, I'm a black woman, and so these are my interests and my concerns. And to, I guess, encourage space, or really not even encourage, like heavy, ham-handedly push space for other stories and other ideas to kind of be explored in in that space. If you're going to... I can't remember how few how many, how few black female lecturers there are in the UK, but it's a very small number. And if most of your career or your your studentship throughout university or whatever schooling is is going to be made up of a certain demographic, then when people with me, I'm very happy to push them to somewhere else and challenge them to engage with 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 what I'm going to bring, as opposed to trying to do trying to do that other thing that's that's there on offer all the time. So I think that's maybe maybe the the big mm. shift, which feels scary still. Sometimes I'm like, oh my god, someone's gonna I'm gonna lose my job if I say that. Am I? But actually, yeah, well, it no. puts you in a vo- bit of a vo- <laughs> honesty and that like vulnerability and openness. It put it can put you in a vulnerable space, can't it? Yeah, it's brave and it's and it's what and it's what needed it as well. Like in in but you in have the arts, to do though, right? It? Yeah. Mm, yeah. Yeah, otherwise you're not being true to yourself as well. Right. And 
I realise that by by being loudly who I am in the space, it gives other students permission to do the same. And that's the most important thing, you know? Yeah. Like, I don't want any student to feel yeah. how I did at certain times when I felt I was completely invisible or the fact that I wanted... Like, I watched this really interesting documentary the other day. I can't remember what it was. My partner was watching it. And it was about students in America at art school, black, Asian, indigenous students who made work about their race and their experience. And the, the teachers just refused to critique it because they don't want to engage with questions of race. So they say, oh, the colours are nice. <laughs> and it might be, like, I don't know, an wow. image of someone maybe trying to reclaim or land something. They will not talk about the content <laughs> at all. They refuse to engage. And it's like, they're like, well, how, how do I grow? How do I know if my work is any good or not? How do I... Oh, well, yeah, exactly. How do I learn? That's crazy. It needs to be a space where people can challenge it as well. Because if so, if some if someone disagrees or or feels challenged by something, like, they need there needs to be that openness to have that dialogue. And if it's, you know, if it is challenged, it might be an uncomfortable conversation, but that's the only way mm. in the arts world that you actually grow and, like, have ideas that challenge you and... Yeah, and, and right. I think it's important that theatre is still used in that sense, in that revolutionary sense, I suppose, because there's not many yeah. art forms that are so accessible, so, like, of the people that can challenge someone in that way. And, yeah, everyone's sort of, like, pussyfooting about at the moment, aren't they? A, li a little bit, it seems. A lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A lot. A lot. Yeah. <laughs> a lot, yeah, a lot of it. So, yeah, how's it shifted for you? Yeah, my practice. I suppose I've just become more confident mm. with myself, who I am, my my expression as as I've got as I've got older. Well, as I'm going through my twenties, and just more security within myself, and less mm. like less pressure. Like I, in lockdown one, I sort of had an ideological shift which I think has have, has affected my art as well, in that I, I've removed goals from my mind and I now do, don't live in a goal-based way. I don't have these goals where I want to, like, box tick from. I, I still have ambitions and, like, I'm still very ambitious. But just, like, by removing the goals, it just, like, allows me to do do whatever and just do my thing. And wherever that takes me, wherever that leads me. And like when I went through that, I was just like, wow. It was such a release and such a relief because I was like, I don't have to like, you know, do this by this age. You know, I don't have to, I don't, because as long as I just keep on doing what I'm doing, it will be fun, you know, and I'll have like mm. good stories to tell at dinner parties, which is ultimately like all we're in it for, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's the only reason the we're like creative. <laughs> Yeah. Do that old Come down with the table. <laughs> yeah. No, exactly. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Exactly. Um, <laughs> I hear that. I hear that. Like, I've I speak to my sister about this a lot. She's she used to work in the banking sector, and now she's like mm. a doula, so helps women through pregnancy, and like owns a company that sells yeah. like head wraps. So she's gone from one one world to another, and she, she always says this thing to me, and I, it's taken me so long to kind of fully grasp it, which is like, you know, like, you, you need to stop judging your, your value and your worth on your productivity, you know? You're, you're not a piece of furniture, you're not a piece of machinery, you're not a piece of equipment. Like, you have value inside and outside of, of what it is that you, that you bring 
what like what your contribution is like financially or your title mm. like you're a human first and foremost and you need to feed the part of you that is just a human and not and try to like stop obsessing over over these things like it's me like trying to finish the phd or trying to get this job or trying to mm. which is part of the anxiety of like, maybe not being born into loads of money but then which is one thing but then there's also the thing of actually how you how you value yourself right and how you how you love yourself and allow yourself mm. to just just be so i really hear that thing of, of goals i think that's really really wonderful mm. well yeah because especially as artists you know we we art is about the expression of life and if we're not we, we're putting all our we're, we're not like focusing on life or living, living life <laughs> like, or our, li- our yeah. life is defined by our work and it's like it's such a like skewed sort of like capitalist mindset that you know you work five days a week and like your free time is just this little bit and because that's oh, because that's... you want money and you want to be able to afford nice things but it's like yeah it's such a such a skewed skewed priority but then, yeah, but then especially as artists, this idea of, like, I need to be working to justify my existence. It's like, nah, yeah. like, I want to do, do cool things. Like, you know, I still want to travel. I still want to, like, mm. do whatever. And money and and work and status, I suppose, helps with access to that. But as long as you can, mm. like, make it work. Yeah, it's just about making it work, isn't it? And it, it gets easier as you get those things so it's like a sort of it's a bit of a paradox because you do need to like work and you do need to like sell your soul a little bit into that mindset to sugar daddy give yourself freedom yeah sugar daddy yeah yeah, yeah. yeah I'm, I'm joking i'd love i don't I'd have love a, sugar, a daddy. sugar daddy or, or a sugar mommy i'm joking uh, i don't have a sugar daddy <laughs> not currently I <laughs> No, like, do you remember Great Expectations? I remember reading that as a kid and like thinking Pip was really lucky because someone suddenly just decided to give him. I can't remember how the whole story goes, but I'm thinking like, this is crazy. Can this shit happen? Like, someone just suddenly become like, just decide they want to be a wealthy benefactor and just put loads of money into your bank account. Even from a young age, I was attracted to that idea. I was just like, is this a thing? How, how often does this happen? Like, what kind of people does this happen to? <laughs> I love that so much. You've got to find them, those philanthropists. <laughs> Let's do a little checkout. Let's say, if you had one little piece of advice for your younger self, what would it be? And something you're looking forward to this week? This week? Um, one piece of advice to my younger self would be to not worry so much about what other people think of you in informing your decisions and something i'm looking forward to this week just being being having a nice creative week and and linking up and collaborating Mm. with people that i'm working on projects with and just bashing heads and getting down to that i think similarly i think i'd i'd tell my younger self just to to slow down (laughs) and calm down and everything will be okay yeah and what I'm looking forward to this week it's weird I think COVID has meant I find it really hard to look very far ahead into the future it's really bizarre I feel so I feel present in the way I haven't been in a long time Mm. uh I've ordered some 
some like cooking chocolate, some fancy cooking chocolate. I'm going to think try and make some brownies this week. So I'm looking forward to that. Oh, delicious. <laughs> Thank you so, so much, team. This has been amazing. Thank you. It's been such a joy to talk to both of you. Thanks for having me. Likewise. It's been a lovely, lovely Sunday morning. Yeah. Up next week is Lev Taylor, who is a student rabbi at Leobet College, and Hayley Kennedy, who is an actor, theatre maker, and has worked lots of the Pappy Show. She's in Girls and Black Girl Magic. Till then, like and subscribe, and you can find out more about the Pappy Show and what we are up to at www.thepappyshow.co.uk. See you next week. This has been It's a Practice, with sound by Roly Botha, music by Jim Caesar, hosted by Rachel O'Hosker and produced by The Pappy Show. Bye.